church, as we continue to worship, would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, verse 12 through verse 42 is going to be our guide this morning. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. So we continue in our series through the Acts of the Apostles here. Uh, some of you are old enough and you've had this experience many times in the past where you've had a church pictorial directory picture taken and you've sat through that individually you sat through that set for that with your family about 10 years ago in a previous church Danielle and I along with our boys we were getting our picture taken as a family and as we were getting our picture taken the we got it taken went to the the place where they're sort of selling us at the you know here's your free picture Here's package A, here's package B, here's package C, package D. And uh, you can get none of these packages here, but there's a $25 upcharge if you want us to retouch the picture. And that was new to me. Now, I mean, now that there's nothing about retouching a picture that not everyone has the opportunity to do on your own phone. You take a picture on your cell phone, there are all kinds of filters that you can use. But 10 years ago, uh, with the pictorial directory pictures, I mean, this was a little new. So I kind of asked, well, what, what are you going to retouch on our picture here? And it's like, well, you'll have less gray hair. Your teeth will be a little wider. Any of these stray hairs, we'll be able to air touch those out of the picture here. I will tell you, I look so good 10 years ago. You should have seen that picture. You should have seen that picture after they figured me out there. No. So uh, the whole church, the whole church for $25 had the ability to have these retouched pictures in the church pictorial directory. I tell you that story because for all practical purposes, we're looking at the first church pictorial directory 2,000 years ago. I mean, this is what the book of Acts is. I mean, we, got, we have portraits of the early church that come at us one after the other, and you need to know that none of them are retouched. I mean, these pictures are not spotless. They're not sanitized. This isn't sort of this Edenic state of the early church. Hypocrisy shows up in those early portraits. Deceit shows up in those early portraits. The very judgment of God shows up in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, where we were last week. We looked at the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We looked at the deceit and the hypocrisy that was threatened, the threatening the very unity of the church there. And it wasn't a spotless, sinless picture wasn't then, it's not now. And Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us, what well, he gives us the result of what happened with the death of Ananias and Sapphira, with the judgment of God that comes. And the, the, verse 11 tells us in chapter 5 that great fear came upon all who were in the church. And you can just imagine the word on the street. You're in Jerusalem, you're walking down. You know these guys and these girls that are worshiping Jesus the Messiah? Did you hear about what happened last week? Two of them died. Could you imagine that this is not the way to win friends and influence people right here? If you're going to come up with an early church growth strategy that's going to draw them in, two people dying in the worship service is not the way that that is going to bring them all in. But they come and the church grows and how does that happen? We hear the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. After these traumatic events, we read, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. 
And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dare join them. There's still some rather skittish here. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And they were all healed. Do you see that? I mean, it's right there in the Bible. Do you see that? They all were healed. We, do, we don't have uh, Luke in this moment giving us any kind of sort of uh, footnote to this or disclaimer to this. Not all. He, I mean, they all were healed. I mean, this is the work of God that is occurring in a way that is wholly unique. If you're walking through the book of Acts, and there's sort of a cinematic quality to it in the sense that there are going to be some times where you have these close-up shots of what's happening, and then they're going to have these panoramic shots that pull out and show you sort of like a 30,000-foot overview of what's happening. We've already had this in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. We've already had a previous one in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. And now we have this sort of James Earl Jones voiceover of what's happening in the early church in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. And just so everybody can keep up at home here, Luke wants us to know how this church is growing. Chapter 1, you got 120 early followers of Jesus. At the end of Peter's message in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, you've got 3,000 that are added to the 120. So we're, we've got 3,100 approximate followers of Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verse 4, Luke tells us that we've got 5,000 men. So he stopped counting the children. He stopped counting the women. Now we come to Acts chapter 5, and we're not even using numbers anymore. They're just a great multitude. So we've got thousands upon thousands that are following Jesus, and the, and, and the apostles are doing these signs and these wonders here. The sick are being carried out to the streets, verse 15. Those who are demon-possessed were brought from the surrounding towns to Jerusalem. And they want to get so close that maybe even the shadow of Peter could fall upon them. It doesn't say that the shadow heals these people. But they, they want to get close to Peter. Because something is happening here that no one can explain. The Lord is building His church is what's happening. And through all and wonders and signs that are happening here. And Peter and the early apostles... Listen, they're not growing this church because they've got this strategic market-tested message. This isn't that they get together these focus groups 2,000 years ago and say, we're going to preach this message, and we're just wondering what, what rough edges we need to, to maybe soften a little bit. How does this sound to you? No, it's, it's the Lord. It is the Spirit of God that is drawing women and men to become followers of God. And he's using the preaching, the proclamation of the gospel, also with signs and wonders. This is this double combo that is happening. The voices of the apostles proclaiming Jesus with these visual attestations of the power of God. It was a unique moment in the church. Now, we read this, and you should think, what's going on here? You should, as you read this, 
join with, with Christians throughout 2,000 years that wrestle with what, what, does, what do these signs and wonders mean for Birmingham, Alabama in 2024 when there's sickness and their ailments that people face. They're two sort of extremes that the church oftentimes falls in, two camps. One camp is just to completely dismiss these signs and wonders as something that is wholly contained in the apostolic age. And it's just there. So you get this box, you put the box right there and say, that's where it's going to be contained. The other extreme is to say, you got a box, that, that this box is not to, to dismiss these signs, but to miraculously duplicate them. Name it, claim it. If you believe enough, signs and wonders will happen in your life. Both of these are boxes that are way too small for our God. These cookie-cutter boxes that we're placing upon an infinite, holy God. Oftentimes in the book of Acts, you have to understand the distinction that he is describing what happened. Luke is describing what happened in the early church. This is not a prescription of what happens everywhere at every time in the church. There's not a prescription that ends up being a promise that if you believe enough, you will be healed of all of your ailments at, like, God's a genie in the bottle. But at the same sign, we, we need to not fall into that ditch of just completely dismissing the healing ministry of God in our age. Yes, it was unique. Yes, this was the incubational period of the church. Yes, we see God working in very unique ways through the apostles that we should not think as ways that are all the time, everywhere, duplicated. But we would also sell short the witness of Scripture that teaches us that our God is a healing God. And when you pray, believing that God hears your prayers in the face of disease, in the face of sickness, in the face of ailments, well, listen, some of you in these very pews have been recipients of God's answer to your prayers. And he's used, oftentimes, wonderful physicians and nurses and medical advances that we have in the 21st century. And you've prayed, and you've also, you've also uh, taken the prescriptions. You've also gone through the treatments, and you've come to the other side of this. And you can look back and say, God, through his infinite wisdom, has brought healing in my life. And we should not shortchange that. And there are other times where we pray for healing. And, and it's not this just easy one-to-one -one correlation between the medicine that we take and the treatment that we take, but something is beyond our understanding. There are also testimonies of that in these very pews. And I get to hear in a very unique way as a pastor, one of the things that I get to hear is the way that God shows up in ways that are beyond our easy explanations. And of course, he is a sovereign, holy, omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent God. He's everywhere all-powerful, and he is a God who, who does what he wills to do. And so there are some times where we cannot explain. Now, there are other times where we pray with great sincerity, and we hear not yes right now to our answers of prayers to, to uh, the sicknesses that we face, but if you are a child of God, he answers yes to all of our prayers for healing, but sometimes that answer yes is not right now, and it's not soon, months from now, but it is yes with an eternal yes where there'll be no more sickness, no more disease. 
And if you're here this morning and you know what it is to wake up with pains, you have an eternity that is before you where every one of your pains are going to be transformed to praises. If you know what it is to feel disease haunting you right here, let me tell you, you've got so much to look forward to where God will answer your prayer for healing with a holy yes for an eternity and every disease that hounds you and follows you will be transformed from an eternal doxology. That's what's ahead. We have so much to look forward to. Now, why God sometimes answers, yes, right now, and sometimes God says, yes, in eternity, how he distinguishes that, we've got to dust off a word to say, hey, that's a mystery. That's beyond our boxes. That's beyond our classifications. God's not a holy genie that we rub three times and, and ask in this perfect way, and he comes out and grants us three wishes. Scripture's clear with that, but it's also clear that he hears our prayers, and he answers them in his infinite wisdom, and however he answers that, our response is, you, God, are good, and we trust you. We trust you that if we knew what you knew and know that we would always always know that your yes is better than our request. Always. So we've got signs and wonders. People are being healed miraculously. Well, of course, everybody's thrilled, right? Everybody celebrates this, right? Well, I mean, you hear the sarcasm in my voice. Of course, the answer is no, not everyone's excited. We meet the opposition in verse 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested. Why did they do this? Because they're filled with jealousy. Their power, their position, their prestige is being threatened here. So they arrested the apostles, they put them in public prison, but during the night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they just did what they were doing that locked them in jail the previous day. They began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the synod of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were, this is an understatement of understatements, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you to not teach in this name. Yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles, if you mark in your Bibles, will you underline this? Will you star this? Will you put an exclamation point by verse 29? The apostles answered along with Peter, we must obey God rather than men. 
And you know what that got them in the end? Well, fast forward to verse 40. And when the apostles, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them to not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy. Do you read this the same way I just did? They, the apostles, Peter, they left the presence of the council after they'd been beaten, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus, come what may. Now, this is the same song, second verse, chapter 4. Peter and John, they show up on the scene there in the temple, and there was a lame man who had been sitting before the gate called Beautiful day in and day out, and they healed that man. And in light of the healing, the religious leaders, they said, we've got to stomp this out. We've got to stop this movement here. Again, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of that day, they're threatened by the growth of this movement as they point to Jesus the Messiah. They have power, they have position, they have financial accessibility. All of that they feel is crumbling around them. And so what do they do? They put them in prison. They lock them up. And just get ready, this is not going to be the last angelic prison break that we're going to read about in the book of Acts here. So the angel shows up in verse 20, and do you notice what the angel says? The angel gives an announcement to the apostles. Go back and start your healing ministry. No. There are other people to heal. No. Verse 20, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. The next morning, the religious leaders of the day go to the very place where the apostles are supposed to be, and the prison is empty. Somebody, someone simultaneously said, aren't those the guys that you put in prison right here? They're out there teaching. You remember those old silent movies? The Charlie Chaplin movies where sort of the bad guys are always kind of speed up and they're sort of bumbling, sort of running into each other. I mean, there's sort of a comedic effect to what's happening here. They're going to the prison trying to find the apostles and they're sort of running into each other as they realize that this has gotten out of their control. In verse 24, they're greatly perplexed. They're greatly perplexed. The high priest steps in and says, listen, I'm just going to tell you like it is here. Peter, the apostles, you have to stop this. You got to be silent about your Savior. We need to be mute. You need to be mute about this Messiah here. And Peter and the apostles, they simply say, sorry, can't give you that. Verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. Now I know it's moving to hear this. I mean, I know that as we see this early snapshot of the courage of Peter and the apostles, it moves us. This is your heritage, church. This is where we have come from. These are our ancestors in the faith who courageously, in, in, the, you know, in the face of opposition, say, come what may, we will not be silent about our Savior. Come what may, we must speak of what we have seen and what we've experienced here. 
Now, as Christians, it's important for us to balance what Peter and the apostles are doing here and to hear it really carefully because you would have the wrong idea if you listened to Peter and you listened to the apostles and you thought that you as a Christian were to glibly utter those words. You're getting the wrong idea. You're getting the wrong idea if you think that we should too quickly utter those words. I don't like that law. I don't like that law. I don't like that law. So I'm not going to submit to authority. Romans 13 is a really good passage to hold in tension to this very passage in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, that, that reminds us that authority is not bad. That God institutes authority, and he institutes authority for our flourishing here on this earth. Flourishing not just for followers of Christ, but for all who inhabit this earth. That authority and restrictions and laws, these things can be a part of God's common grace. His gift for the flourishing of our existence here on earth. But what we're dealing with here is very specific, and I don't want you to miss this here. What we're dealing with is when the ask of the land comes into direct conflict with the ask of God. When the ask of the land is in direct opposition to the ask of God, who wins out? The apostles are disobeying the authorities. Why? Because in Acts chapter 1, Jesus was right before them and said, You guys, you right here. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. I'm giving you that task. And now what is happening, the religious authorities of the day say, you can do anything, but you can't be witnesses of him. And so we've got the law of the land and direct opposition to the very words of Jesus himself. Who is going to win? Will they be silent about their Savior? And the answer is no. Will they be mute about the Messiah? And the answer is no. And there is a principle to ponder that is not first introduced in the book of Acts, but it is a through line of Scripture. And that is simply, it is sinful to submit to sinful commands. And you see this in Scripture, don't you? Go back to Exodus chapter 1. Do you remember the, the most important person that was living in that ancient Near Eastern world? His name was Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said, all of the Hebrew boys, they have a destination. And that destination is for them to be drowned in the Nile. And you have these two bold and courageous Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua. And they said, the law of the land is coming into direct opposition to the law of God. Who will we obey? And they oppose Pharaoh, which is absolutely unheard of. Because they would rather answer to God than to answer to him. Then you fast forward to Daniel. You have Daniel who is told by an egotistical king, because they all were, you can pray, Daniel, but you only can pray to me. And all of the inhabitants of, of, of this kingdom can pray, but they've got to pray and give homage to me. And Daniel says, I just can't do that, King Darius. And so he doesn't do this secretively, but the next day he goes out and he goes out in daylight, opens up the curtains and, and everybody's able to see him praying to God. Why? What is happening here? The ask of the land is in direct opposition to the ask of God. And so Daniel says, I must disobey the king's orders. And you can walk through the Old Testament and you see these through lines, whether it's, it's uh, Queen Esther, 
whether it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whether it's the two Hebrew midwives, whether it's Rahab, you see this come up again and again and again. And it is still a truth that occurs for millions of Christians today. There, there are millions of Christians that underline this verse in a way that you and me, that we don't. They underline this verse because even today for them, it is illegal for them to possess a Bible. There, there are millions of Christians across our world that together, to gather to, to worship is to oppose the edict and the law of the land, to evangelize. And you have Christians that wisely, prudently, carefully say, we will answer to, well, we will submit to a higher authority. We will answer to God. So this isn't just ancient history 2,000 years ago. And also, it's interesting, just this last week, I started uh, Jonathan Eag's uh, new biography, about six months old now, on Martin Luther King Jr. And I was reflecting upon what King did very close to where we are right here. 1963, Dr. King is put in jail in Birmingham. And he writes a 10-page letter. And as this biography is talking about it, and this last week I went back and I read that letter. And I've read it before, and many of you have read this letter. And it's really a, a courageous commentary on this very passage, Scripture. He's actually commenting on, we must obey God rather than men. You remember the details of this, don't you? He's in jail in Birmingham, and he's, he, he's writing to Caucasian pastors in our city in 1963 who are criticizing him, and not only criticizing him, but criticizing the, the work of the civil rights workers in breaking laws and mandates and edicts of the land here in Birmingham and in Alabama. And King writes, he's using Thomas Aquinas, he uses St. Augustine, but he's commenting on this very passage right here about the laws being, well, unjust segregation laws. King, if you remember, was arrested. Why was he arrested? Do you remember that? Because he was parading without a permit. And King, in his letter from a Birmingham jail, said, there's nothing wrong with an ordinance that would give you a permit to have a parade. But what he criticizes is this ordinance that was being used to preserve segregation and to deny a certain group of citizens their First Amendment right to and privilege to peacefully protest. It's in that moment, King says, in very prophetic voice, that this law is unjust. So, so this passage is not as far in our rearview mirror of history as we might like to think it is. It's not just back in Egypt. It's not just back in Jerusalem. But there are Christians across our world that underline this verse, and it is tremendously relevant to them. There are Christians in our own city's history. It's the civil rights movement that looked at this verse in a way that many others did not look. Now, I want you to hear me carefully on this. I don't think that this is just a part of our history. I don't think this is just a part of the global reality of the persecuted church. But I actually think for Christians, increasingly, this will be a verse that Christians underline here in the United States in a way that we have not underlined before. Because it's one thing for Christians to read this passage and say, theoretically and hypothetically, we must obey God rather than men. But it's another thing when the law of the land and the very word of God come into direct opposition to one another. Like, who wins out at that time? 
It wasn't that long ago that our whole country was reeling with the entire world about what did it look like to safely gather? What did it look like for the church to worship and for other institutions to continue to, to operate in the midst of, of COVID restrictions and COVID lockdowns? And it wasn't that long ago that you knew, as I knew, of churches that were looking at this passage in a way that we weren't having to look at this passage, actually. I had some friends of mine who were pastoring in different states, and when I would talk to them, the way that they were trying to navigate this faithfully to submit and to honor authority, but also to be wise and to be biblical in the midst of this. And it was, it was interesting, some of the conversations they were having to have, because they wanted to honor authorities, but there were restrictions that in many ways were draconian. They were placed upon churches in a very unique way. And they weren't just Christian churches, but religious communities of all different faiths. And the irony of, of liquor stores and marijuana dispensaries being deemed as essential services and faith communities having to, to pause indefinitely place so many Christians in a place where they were looking at this passage, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. And they looked at it not theoretically nor hypothetically. And it wasn't that long ago in, in another state where, where Christians were having to wrestle with what did it look like when you have arbitrary numbers of no more uh, than 100 people could gather. And I had a pastor that I knew was a friend who had a, a sanctuary that was enough where people could socially distance and have really over 1,000 people in his sanctuary and having to wrestle with what do we do in the state that he was serving in and continues to serve in with these kinds of restrictions that are being placed upon us. Now listen, no no one wants to go back and relive those COVID days. Hindsight is 2020 for all of us when it comes to these discussions. But we would be really naive as people of faith to not honestly look back and to realize that in some places of our country, there were faith communities, not just Christian communities, but all faith communities that were treated unfairly at best and unjustly at worst. We'd be foolish and naive to not understand that that is true. Now, what does this mean for you? Now, I've got to be honest with you. I don't know. What, what does this passage, we must obey God rather than men, what does it actually mean for you? I don't know. For many of us here in the sanctuary, the answer most likely is nothing. We will, you will not most likely be placed in a situation where the authority or an authority is asking you to submit to a sinful command. And so it very well could be that for decades to come, you individually will not be in a situation like Peter and the apostles are in, but we must not ignore that there are thousands upon thousands of Christians that this is their daily existence. And so we stand in solidarity with the persecuted church. We pray for men and women who underline this verse, and it is not theoretical, and it's not hypothetical. And we also realize that this morning we had six-year-olds that were singing behind us, and eight-year-olds, and 10-year-olds. And I would dare say as your pastor that in the decades to come, that our children and grandchildren are going to underline this verse, and it very well might not, might not be as theoretical or hypothetical as we might even feel that it is today sitting in these pews. And so the question is, 
What happens when our allegiances collide? What happens when our allegiance at a workplace or an allegiance in our community or an allegiance with an authority collides with our ultimate allegiance that is given to God? Who gets the last word in your life? Who gets the last word in your life? And it very well may not be that you face overt persecution, but are you willing, are you willing to lose social capital? Are you willing to be looked at askew? Are you willing to, to, to lose an understanding that, that you're just going along with the flow of the culture no matter where the flow goes? Are we willing to boldly and courageously say, we must obey God rather than men. And when come what may happens to you or happens to a family member or happens to family and friends that live closely or live uh, far away, would we be able to say that we counted it worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus? Those questions might not be as hypothetical as you think they are. Let us pray.